Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Although several victims of Father Maskell came forward in the 90s, Sharon May at the prosecuting office of Baltimore refused to go forward with charges. Many questions arose as to why, and in The Keepers, Sharon May suggests she just didn't think that they had enough to convict him of charges. But more on this later. When criminal charges were going nowhere, two women, who chose to keep their identity secret, came forward to sue in civil court. Jane Doe and Jane Rowe. The women, identified in court as Jane Rowe and Jane Doe, were students at Archbishop Keogh High School in the 1960s and 70s. Both claimed they were raped and abused by Father Joseph Maskell. In testimony today, the first woman claimed that she never forgot much of the abuse. In fact, she said for years she told numerous people that Father Maskell was, in her words, a pervert. But she remained too afraid of him to go to court. However, she says she recently remembered new instances of abuse that she had repressed. The second woman testified she had forgotten all the abuse until recently. Their attorney explained why they didn't remember. That they simply suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the traumas that were inflicted upon them. And that one of the component elements of that is an inability to recall the traumatic events. The new memories are really key here. That's because the statute of limitations on alleged assaults that occurred more than 20 years ago has long since expired. But if the judge accepts that the women only recently remembered other instances of abuse, he could clear the way for the case to go to trial. If this case goes to trial, each and every one of those witnesses will be subjected to investigation and rigorous cross-examination. The credibility of their story will be very much at issue in the event that this case goes to trial. Father Maskell, who was not in court, has denied the charges. In Baltimore, Amy Landsman, News Channel 2. Risa, I'm sure you remember back when you and I first spoke. I think it's been almost two years now. Yeah, about that. I don't know if you realize this, Teresa, but when you and I first spoke to each other, of course, it was prior to the keepers coming out. I didn't really know about the abuse behind Sister Kathy's murder. That's all all that I knew was Sister Kathy. So right. it was because when I first spoke to you, that was when I learned about it. I yeah. learned about Sister Kathy's case because one of my very first podcasts was for a young Catholic girl out of Ohio. 
when I released that, someone told me about a Catholic nun that had been murdered a long time ago as well. So that's when I started looking into it, and that's how I got into contact with you, Teresa. And until you and I spoke over the phone, most of the times I don't look into cases until I can start talking to people, just because I want to make sure that I get the full story from people. So it wasn't until that first conversation when you were telling me what happened to you, like it was mind-blowing to me. I did not Mm. expect that phone conversation to go in that direction. And it was eye-opening, too, because then after talking to you, the more I learned about Sister Kathy and the circumstances behind all the abuse, that's when everything started making sense. Now it's been a while, and I think that the last time you and I actually spoke on the phone like this was during that recording. We are Facebook friends. I do keep up to date on the awesome things that you've been doing. One of the first things that I would like to lead into, of course, is where all of this started, where this entire conversation started. So, Teresa, can you kind of lead me into when you first started attending Keo and what all happened there? Sure. When Keo was a brand new school, I was at the top of my class at St. William of York. I believe, Gemma, that's where you went to. <laughs> yeah, I was You're ahead of Teresa. Yep. Yeah. I really wanted to go, and my mom went with me to an open house there at Keogh. She was really impressed. The language labs and the -the state-of-the-art equipment they had. During the tour, a thing that stuck out with me was when they took us to Father Maskell's office. The nun showing us the area said, this is where the girls are free to come and sit and talk with the good father Maskell, about any problems they may have, and he can even hear confession in his office. I remember telling my mom it would be very uncomfortable for me to sit right across from a priest and give confession because at St. William's, you always were in the little booth, and it gave you a little bit of privacy. I never thought that I'd have to do that, so that wasn't a deal breaker for going to the school. When I was accepted into the school, I was really happy. My first two years there, I was on the honor roll and I was college bound. I really wanted to get into medicine. Things were taken off. It, it was just a wonderful experience. However, the summer of 69, I started to hang out with kids in at coffee houses not just at Gibbons, but down at Maiden Choice Lane. There was a school there. I enjoyed that. My dad, my mom, not so much, but my dad didn't like the idea that my boyfriend's hair was longer than mine. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, really. And he was a really cool um, lead guitar player and in a rock and roll band. And I just really, really was having a lot of fun. My My grades were still good. Some of the crowd did smoke pot, okay? I went to uh, Gibbons once and was what they call tabbed with LSD. That was supposed to be a gift, believe it or not. The Boone's Farm wine would get passed around, and they would put a couple tabs of really potent LSD in there. And when that hit me, I didn't understand it. It was really bizarre. I, I I shied away from that. 
But the bottom line was my parents found some pot in my purse, and they were hysterical. You wouldn't believe the horror that night was. I'll never forget it. My mom going back and forth and telling me my dad was going to die. He's going to have a heart attack. And so the next day was a Monday, and I went to Keogh. My father drove me to Keogh and the silent treatment and just opened the door, and I got out. And when I went into Keogh, I met my friend Linda Trescott, and I cried, and I told her all about the horrors of home and how I didn't know what I was going to do. They were hysterical. I was killing them. And together, Linda and I decided that Father Maskell would be a good way to go because my father, my personal father, believed that anything the priest said or did was God's words. And Mm. I figured it would smooth it over. That's when Linda and I walked down that hall and knocked on Maskell's door. Maskell opened the door and I just started screaming. I was busted (laughs) and I started crying. Maskell had a grin on his face. He just led Linda out at that point and brought me into the office and he pulled his chair around the front of the desk at that point. He told me to come over and sit on his lap. He started playing with my hair. I had a blazer on and he said, we don't need this. And he took that off and I had a shirt on. Oh, we don't need this. He took it off. Systematically, he had me completely buck naked within the first Mm. five minutes. I was Mm. sitting in his lap. I was terrified. I was terrified because I wasn't sure how he was going to help out with the situation with my parents. I'm sitting there naked except for my socks. My, My socks were... They gave me comfort. I know it sounds weird, but he did let me keep my socks on. I sat there, and he just rubbed me all over and told me he was touching me in a godly manner. And that very first day, he said that he used to take girls out on boats, and these girls, these bad girls, were saying bad things about him, and he had to sell his boat. And he said he feels he can only help girls if he has contact that went on for hours he did give me a drink at one point and I do remember everything from him rubbing me all over and telling me to spread my legs and all kinds of stuff but then I don't remember how I got dressed and how I got home I just remember being in front of my parents' house and Maskell opening the door and letting me out and walking me up to my parents' front door. And my father there was greeting him and thanked him so much for taking me under his wing. So Mm. that was the very first experience I had with Maskell. What year Uh, did you say you were at that time? That was, I was 16 years old. It was the beginning of the junior year when that happened. So that was right around the time that Sister Kathy went missing, isn't it? 
I believe so. Gemma, you would would know more uh, about that. Yeah, Teresa, what what year did you graduate? From? You finished Keo, right? In seventy two. Yeah, I graduated. Okay, so you were two years behind me. She disappeared in the fall of sixty nine, and you would have been maybe that was your sophomore year. God, it's hard when it's school years. It's not like calendar years. It was right. my junior year, and it was the fall of 69 when all that happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. So then I began to be called out of classes and to report to Father Maskell. But most of the time, initially, was by myself. There was occasion that he called me out, and he told me that I had to pray with him, and he took me to the chapel. Through his office, there there was a way to get to the chapel through his office. He had me do oral sex, and he ejaculated in a chalice, and he raised the chalice, body of Christ, body of blood, whatever that I had to drink that. Then he lifted me onto the altar and told me that he was going to do a physical because he was going to be a gynecologist first. God called him away from that. It was like a GYN table. And this really screwed with my mind because all through St. Williams, we were taught everything on the altar was sacred, right? So there I am sitting on the altar and him just sticking things in and saying that he's examining me and making sure my pelvic is all right and stuff like that. After that ordeal, I was really couldn't stop shaking. He gave me a drink, and I believe it calmed me down, and he let me sit outside, and there was a way out from his office. I sat out there and smoked cigarettes for a while, and I was allowed to do that. And before I knew it, it was like 4.30 or so, and Maskell, again, would drive me home. I don't quite remember how I got dressed. I lay in bed at night now and try to figure out how I got dressed. It's really Mm -hmm. frustrating not to remember that. Teresa, one of the things that I'm aware of, just because of the times that I was studying forensic psychology, our mind sometimes does good things. Sometimes it, our mind doesn't allow us to remember things when it knows something horrible is happening. So I'm wondering if that is a part of that memory lapse during that period of time. I have said that to other survivors. I get calls, a lot of calls from survivors, and some of them just want to talk about coming forward the first time. And they say they can't remember this or that. And I say, I really believe it's a gift not to remember everything. Like the time Maskell took Linda and me, Linda was spending the night with me. She was the only person that Maskell would allow my parents to have over. And Maskell would pick Linda and me up at my house at 500 Nottingham. I remember this because it was October 1970, Halloween. It's messed up my Halloweens for the rest of my life because every, I mean, I get into it with the kids and dress them up really cute. But in the back of my head, I remember Maskell taking Linda and me to the wooded area 
And of course, Linda being pulled out of one side of the car back seat and taken off to another area. There was a lot of police cars there. And I was thrown down in the back seat. And Maskell was standing outside of his car laughing. And he did have a shiny money clip because I was focusing on him and the money clip when two police officers came to the back seat and took turns raping me. And but I was able to just put my mind in another place and just study him and his money clip that way, escaping the body situation. That was something that that Linda was unable to ever get over. I she when she was led back to the car, Maskell drove us to my parents, and we were both completely quiet. I guess in catatonic state and right. he took us to the front door and my father was there. Oh, thank you. It's good father Maskell. Linda and I would smile and just go up to my bedroom and shut the door and just sit there and stare at each other. What just it, happened, huh? Yeah. I, I did have a yeah. cool room. I had black lights everywhere and the day glow posters and Uriah Heath and Moody Blues. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. So it was a place of comfort, but we really were in shock about what the hell just happened. Was that the Three first th- time that Linda had that experience with you? The, the actual the raping, yes. There was a time prior when Maskell and there's some ladies, friend of mine, I won't give the last name, but Vicki remembered distinctly Linda and me being called out of class at the same time. It was like with Linda Trescott and Carrie Harris report to Father Maskell's. And at that time, when we were there, Maskell said, we're going to try something different. And he took all my clothes off. I got so used to the man taking all my clothes off, except for my socks. <laughs> and he laid me on the floor. And Linda, he said, he gave Linda mirrors and all kinds of stuff. And he said, you're going to learn the anatomy. And he made Linda touch me all over and stick things in me and stuff. And Linda was mortified. Again, he had his gun and he Whenever he saw us afraid, he'd make it a point to bring the gun front and center. And then he would always say, Montrose is where you'll be for the rest of your life if you don't cooperate or if you tell anybody. In our ongoing journey dissecting real-life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. 
For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. Teresa, can you explain a little bit, because there's going to be a lot of people who don't know what Montrose is, and I know you know what it is. Yeah, I didn't know about it until Maskell said Montrose, and he said Montrose is a school for bad girls. You will be put in there, and you will get hurt in there by the rough girls. You'll never get out. It's an institution. And at that point, he had been giving me psychological testing with Dr. Urban in the school, and he told me that the test showed that I was brain damaged and that he told my parents that I was schizophrenic because I made the one mistake of, at one point, I had acid. Somebody gave me acid. I'm not blaming on anybody but myself. And I took it right before going to bed. Note to self, don't take acid and then try to go to bed because it didn't work. But I was called out of class that next day and Maskell said, what is wrong with you? And I said, I had LSD and I heard my dad hollering at me all night. So Maskell took that and called my parents and told them that I was schizophrenic because I Mm. was hearing voices. And that's when he sent me to Dr. Guzman, who put me on Thorazine because I was nuts. And that really threw me for a loop because I couldn't hardly think uh, at all at the time I was on the Thorazine. What kind of drug is that? Do you guys know? I don't know what it is. I was told in recent research that it is a very, very heavy psychotropic drug given to schizophrenics, and Mm -hmm. they do no longer use it because mm-hmm. it's found to, to be so mind-altering that they mm-hmm. don't use it. And then that's when Maskell and Dr. Guzman actually asked my parents if they could give me LSD and observe and film exactly what helped, happened to me during a trip. And my father put his foot down at that and said, mm-hmm. absolutely not. But they wanted to use me as a guinea pig. Do we know anything else about Dr. Guzman, if he's still living or if anybody else had the experience of going there? There was a time when there was some investigators that wanted to look into that. It was Alan Horn. I told him that Guzman was on Wilkins Avenue near St. Agnes, that I sure would like to know more about him. Because my lawyer, Beverly Wallace, she told me back in the day that you're lucky there because Guzman used to make his clients take all their clothes off before they talked about their their trauma. (laughs) So I said that never happened to me. I remember going into Dr. Guzman, Mm -hmm. dripping my head off and telling him I could put my hands through the wall and the Mm -hmm. wall would melt around me. I think I was just trying to irritate him because I didn't like Mm -hmm. being there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, he never 
got sexual with me. I don't remember Urban getting sexual, although I think I told you a while back, Gemma, that for some reason when I was with Urban, he stuttered something horrific. But then again, Maskell was in there a lot with him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that was the situation. But he did yeah. the testing. I think it was when I told you I talked to him on the phone last year. Yeah. Because I actually just called him up. And, of course, he was very nice. What else is he going to be? But he said, oh, I've been expecting you to call me, which kind of freaked me out. And he said, I want to applaud all the work you're doing. And I made the mistake of giving him my phone number. And now he knows my phone number and won't answer the phone anymore. But the attorney general is going to take care of that. Can you kind of blame Gemma who he is? Teresa, you go ahead because you actually had the interaction with him. Yeah, Father Maskell, after he convinced my parents I was schizophrenic, he said that Dr. Urban, we are fortunate to have him on our staff. He's going to give you the testing and determine just how much brain damage you have from all the drugs you've been doing. He never asked my parents' permission. He just walked me down there, and I would be shut in a room with Irvin, and I'd be taking hours of tests, like sequencing and ink blots and stuff like that. And then Maskell would call me his office, and he said, these are the, re- the tests you took, and he would interpret the test that, Dr. Urban gave. He told me, Shane, that it was like he would rotate around to different schools, that he had a contract with the archdiocese, Mm -hmm. and he would be like the testing person. And Teresa, I'm thinking probably a lot of the tests that he gave, he was not authorized to give, and neither was Maskell. And that's probably a lot of what was in the cemetery because we were able to get still shots of those. And they are, there are psychological tests, personality tests. And only the, a person with a lot of authority would have been given permission to administer those, and certainly not without parents. But he told me he was only at Keo for three hours a week, which I knew was not true. And he said, if I ever had heard of anything going on, I would have been under penalty of losing my license if I didn't report it. And I just listened and yeah, what do you same? Yeah, what's he gonna say? Yeah. I do remember there was a couple times that Sister Judith would open the door and look at Guzman and me and then shut the door. She knew what was going on. She didn't say anything, but she knew what was going on. And Mm -hmm. again, I was out of class. I swear to God, I didn't get any education in my junior and senior year other than survival, trying Mm -hmm. to survive. There was a time when Linda came to school and she was drunk because she was having problems with her boyfriend and Maskell. He stopped me. I might have told you, stopped me in the hall in front of the uh, general office. And he literally pushed me against the wall and said, where's Linda? And then it was like a week before graduation. I was already married. I ran off and got married and I was expecting a baby. And then I said, why? What do you want to do? You want to get her in there and do perverted things to her? And he said, I'll never forget. Harris, I'm going to fry your ass. I'm going to fry your ass. And he smacked me and went Mm. on his way. And the lady at the typewriter, I remember she had a red dress on and dark hair. 
she looked up and saw that, and then she looked right back down at her typewriter. And I said to Max, well, sure, I'm not afraid of you anymore. You're not scaring me, and I'm never, ever telling you where Linda is. But mm. unfortunately, he found her. Somebody told where she was in Morrow Park. He went and picked her up at her boyfriend's house, brought her to school, took her in his office, and molested her nine ways from Sunday. She told me what he did to her. My friend Rosie, who was really strong, was beaten on the door saying, let her out, let her out, you pervert. Rosie mm-hmm. would do that when I was in there for four and five hours. Let her out. And somebody's going to notice that. Somebody screaming outside his office, banging on the door. The whole thing is just ridiculous. And nobody lifted an eyebrow. I think. They, they were afraid because Sister Kathy, yeah. I do believe with all my heart that Sister Kathy mm-hmm. lost her life because she was try- going. To, she tried to help the girls. And I may never be able to prove that, but obviously Maskell was a serial rapist and then some, but I can't prove that he killed Sister Kathy, but who else would have such a motive to have her killed? That that's my exactly. belief. And not only to have her killed, but it looks like, in my opinion, the way that they did it and returned her car to that place, it all looks to me like a sign being given to all the people who may have known or may have seen something to keep their mouths shut. Were were those two friends of yours, were those the only two that knew about what was happening that you knew about? No, actually. I had a friend I had a friend, Kathy we escaped Maskell. We went into the catwalk in the uh, auditorium and sat up there and, and smoked pot on our free period. And we, I got to know about her, and she said she referred to Father Maskell as Dr. Maskell. And she mm-hmm. said Dr. Maskell gave her GYNs on the altar all the time. And she ended up pregnant and had to leave the school, but she never wanted to pursue anything. I think a lot of it was escape to get out of the school, but to let you know some really perverted stuff the man did. I hope this doesn't gross you out or anything, but it's important for people to know, I think. I'm writing a book, which will be out in 2019, and this is going to be in it. There Mm -hmm. was one day I was called into his office, and he was grinning like the Cheshire cat, okay? And I sat down, and he jumped over his desk, grabbed me. I ran all around the office. He tore my clothes off. There I am, buck naked. He tackled me, and he stuffed the suppository, what he thought was in my rectum. In reality, it was in my vagina. So Mm -hmm. he picked me up and threw me on the toilet, in his, he had the toilet in his rec in his office, and he pulled a big chair around and sat there smiling because he loved to watch me have bowel movements. And it, it didn't happen because it was in my vagina. When after a while it didn't happen, he took me off there and threw me across the room, went in his desk and got some medicine and stuffed it down my mouth laughing hysterically 
And there's another time, I don't remember how I got dressed or got home, but in the morning, I had tremendous problems. I had to keep going to the bathroom. So whatever he gave me did that Mm -hmm. to me, but he loved to watch me in the bathroom, which has screwed up my life for life considerably. Some of it is just ludicrous what he, what got him off. He was at a friend who was at St. Clemens. She was a lecturer there. She was young. She was young. I always thought of her as a daughter. And I said, don't let that man get near you. He's a pervert. Don't let him get near you. And she said, oh, she used to call me Miss Terry. Miss Terry, he just likes to grab my ass when I'm standing at the podium. And he Mm. always asks me about my orifices. This is at Mass at St. Clement. So it went on with a lot of other people that just sloughed it off as, oh, I guess that's the way he is. How long did your abuse with Masco last? I know that you said it was around your junior year when it started. It started in the fall of my junior year when I was 16, and it went all through junior year. And then when I came back for senior year, he called me down, and it went on throughout my senior year up until at least three weeks before graduation. That, of course, I got pregnant, and I graduated. Did you ever actually have Sister Kathy as a teacher? No, no, I didn't. One time I met Sister Kathy was when I applied for drama club as a ninth grader. And I was a nerd and I didn't know how to act. I probably looked like a real dork up there, but (laughs) I didn't make the drama club. But I do remember Sister Kathy urging me to not give up and to keep practicing. And I just remember her as being incredibly kind. I only met her once, but I won't forget her saying, you didn't, you weren't that, you weren't bad. You just need to practice. Do you have any memory of when you may have heard that Sister Kathy went missing? I know that she wasn't at the school at that time. The the fall after she was found dead, I remember, and I remember vividly, I wondered because not only did Maskell do things to me, I had heard, had heard things that he did, like my brother Mark went to St. Clemens Parish, and he told me before I was even abused, I think, that when he went to confession, Maskell would ask him all kind of questions about his sex life and stuff. But the bottom line, I guess I'm trying to say, is when I learned she was missing and then she was dead, I believed he did it from day one. I really did. Mm -hmm. Because she was trying to help help the girls. And I knew his ring went big because he had cops. That Halloween night when I was raped and Linda was raped, that wasn't the first time that I was taken police runs with Linda. And I don't remember the details of at least two, possibly three other ones, other than my father was really glad to have Maskell come to my house and pick me up and take me mm-hmm. out. But I knew he, he wasn't right. When did Jean attend Keo? Was it prior to Teresa's abuse started? Isn't that right? 
Yeah, it was. She was a year ahead of me, Jean. I think yeah. she was yeah. one year. And she had the honor of really knowing Sister Kathy, knowing how much she really loved her students and really made everything fun. She was a bubbly young nun. And they, I believe that she found out her girls were being hurt, especially Jean. She was going to try to stop it. And this thing went so high, other people were involved. I talked to a lot of survivors through SNAP. I counsel people. I have a social work degree, and I do counsel some of the victims. They were harmed, and most of the victims just need a kind word and reassurance that they're not alone and this didn't just happen to you. We don't have to name any names here, but just an important thing that I did want to include while we were talking about Sister Kathy is there are some victims of the abuse who have said that they did tell her. And we can just leave it at that. Teresa, knowing all the information that you have and everything that happened to you, it sounds like you do believe that Maskell had a part in Sister Kathy's murder. When you heard that her remains were found, did you know that? Did you have that opinion back then, or was it a little bit later when you started putting those clues together? I had it back then. I knew he was dirty. I did tell everybody at my lunch table that Maskell was a pervert and stay away from him. The people at my lunch table, the names were, i just give first names, Trish and Bonnie and Mary, and they didn't know what to do to help me. And one thing was when Maskell took me to the gynecologist, and he took me at least three times that I can vividly remember. This may seem silly, but I am going to put it in my book because it is telling. I think I was always made to take all my clothes off. Every time I was in Maskell's office, that was the MO for me was I couldn't keep any clothes on except my socks. The reason I'm saying that is when I had to go to the gynecologist, I had a pair of socks that had holes in them. And at the lunch table, I begged my friend Trish to switch socks with me. And and she did. She understood. I said, please, it means a lot. It was like some dignity left in it. She did. And that's the my book. I'm calling it Safe Sock because that's where I felt a little bit of calm. I tried to put my head in other things and on the stirrups and all in Richter's office. I could at least look at my socks. You can feel when you're wearing socks so that it makes sense to me thinking that if you're going through all those things that you would then be able to focus solely on feeling your sock at that point in time so you cannot pay attention to what's going on. Teresa, what led into the Doe Rocade? Ever since the abuse happened, it affected me. I told, like I said, of people at the lunch table and I told my first husband about it. I just, I joined SNAP and I wrote letters. We had talk groups online and there was kind people that were trying to help me through SNAP. After my mom died unnecessarily, it was a horrible botched biopsy. She's supposed to be out in 24 hours. After that happened, I was at a real low. I didn't want to live anymore. And I got this letter in the mail 
from apparently, I know now it was from Jean's family, and it was asking if you knew of unusual sexual transgressions at the school. That's when I called Beverly Wallace's office from a phone booth. I didn't know it was Beverly at the time. I just said, what do you want to know? Because I can tell you a hell of a lot that went on from 68 to 72. And then Beverly, who I didn't know at the time, I just knew her as a voice, said, why don't you tell us? And I just said, the father Maskell was a pervert. And he did a lot of things to a lot of girls. Then she asked if I would like to come into the office and talk about it and possibly be in Jean's witness. And that's how that took off. And originally, I was going to be the witness for Jean. How did that come about to where you did become another plaintiff? Was Beverly, Phil Dante's, and Jim Maggio sitting around a table. And I sat there with my yearbook and a couple notes, and I told them everything that Maskell did to me. I remember Jim Maggio saying, you, you've never had therapy for any of this? I said, no, I just accepted it and had a bunch of kids and put my mind in raising them. But they said that if you want to be a plaintiff, we would love to join you on as Jane Rowe. So one of the big differences between you and Jean is that over the years, you heard some of the details behind the abuse, but not all of it, or not as much. Is that correct? I Yeah, I, I remembered a whole lot. I heard being naked and him doing the enemas and the douchebags and having a fascination watching me use the bathroom. And Maskell told me to take a douche two and three times a day. And not until I met the forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Bloomberg, during the case, he said that that's not necessary. Maskell always said I needed to be clean, but he, he told me that wasn't necessary, Bloomberg. And Bloomberg also said I would believe you because my receptionist was abused by Maskell, too. And that was in the 90s. That was really frustrating that I knew all these people had been abused, but we couldn't get it together. We didn't have social media back then. I know that you touched on this a little bit, but Maryland law at the time when the Doe Roe case came about, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because of course we know that you're a lawyer now. At the time, the law was that a civil sexual abuse case had to be filed within seven years from the victim's 18th birthday or three years from the event for adult cases. So what your case and Jean's case were trying to do was saying, since they didn't remember what had happened until this period of time, we believe that should be falling within the law. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. We were assuming that the statute shouldn't run until both Jean and I remembered new abuse, and that would have allowed us to sue. Then we had, it couldn't have happened at a worse time because that was a time when there was false memory syndrome being thrown all over the news. And that's not even a recognized illness in the DSM. False memory was a coined line that McHugh came up with and it just beat it down. But fortunately, about six months ago, I was able to give a talk at the law school 
about repressed memory and the hippocampus and how we have proven scientifically that women and men can go years and years without remembering this. And it's a trigger. If I see a collar on a priest, I get physically nauseated. That's just one of my many triggers. But there is legitimate science background to prove that repressed memory does indeed exist. There's some case law in Montgomery County where judge let it in. And I think we're seeing a big change now as people understand the hippocampus and the fight flight mechanism. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is fully connected, but what you were just talking about reminded me of this. Back a long time ago, my dad was hit by a drunk driver. Because of the accident, it was a horrible accident. He was in a coma for a really long time. He continues to this day to be to have mental and physical disabilities because of it. But I remember when I was really young trying to talk to him about it and then to talk because you can tell that something's wrong when you look at him. Yeah. So I remember being a child and asking him questions. And I remember certain points, he would tell me none of it he remembered. He couldn't remember up to two weeks prior to the accident. He couldn't remember being in the accident. He couldn't remember being in the hospital or anything like that. But I do remember certain things would happen to where if he was in a car and a vehicle didn't stop in time because the vehicle that hit him had ran a stoplight. Oh. But that would immediately cause him to remember a lot of bad things and he would remember the car accident happening so that when you were talking about that that just clicked in my mind of experiencing that of my dad remembering those things happening but it wasn't until something flicked that memory that solidifies the science behind how the body protects itself i know when things were being done to me in Maskell's office, I just put my brain somewhere else. Whenever anything traumatic happens to me, when I had breast cancer, I Jess and Ryan were filming at that time, and they said, how are you going to cope? And I said, I'm going to put my mind somewhere else, and the person being operated on isn't going to be me for a while. And I don't know, maybe that sounds like I'm completely insane, but I think it's the way the body protects itself from horror that we have to go through. Do you still have a habit of always wanting to wear socks? Yes. (laughs) It it makes sense. Especially without holes. I get delighted when I get socks for Christmas and there's no holes. Can you kind of talk about what had happened during the Doe Row case and what the outcome was? Yeah, I can talk about that now. The outcome was devastating because we put so much time, effort, and pain to this. And my dad was an attorney at the time, and he'd never told any of this if my mom hadn't passed away in 93. But when I decided to sue, I did go to my father, who is strict Catholic, and I said, I'm suing your church. You're just going to have to get get real with it. And this shit happened, and I'm sorry if it blows you away, but I got to do it. And instead of him being hysterical, he said he was behind me 100%, and he said that I should approach it on a conspiracy angle instead of the statute of limitations. He said, you're never going to beat the statute of limitations. 
And he actually started writing up some case law that I was showing to Beverly, but they already got their theory of the case down as statute of limitation. But if we could have proven it was a conspired systematic cover-up by the church, we may have been able to get it that angle. Was your dad an attorney? Yeah, my father was an attorney, my uncle attorney, my, my cousin's judge, Paul Harris, my brother's a lawyer. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. For the Doe Row case, and this is more of a question, but did you guys have to do the civil suit? Because you, of course, after so much, so long of a time, there would be no evidence that you could throw out there to support a criminal lawsuit. I did talk to Sharon May back in 94, and I told her I wanted to pursue it criminally. And she said that there wasn't enough evidence. And I said that Beverly Wallace had 30-some witnesses ready to come forward to talk about what happened at Keogh. And at that point, Sharon said that we just can't do it. And then I said, what about his rectory and the ladies that saw us being pranced up to his bedroom with music playing and all kinds of crazy shit going on. And they wouldn't pursue it. And from Deep Throat, and I know Gemma knows 
deep throat right. from our mm-hmm. meeting. There was evidence, but the people were scared out of their mind. And rightfully, what happened to Sister Kathy? She came and visited yeah. me at my Ellicott City House, and he, and she said, if I need a victim of Father Maskell, all I have to do is open my window and I'll or anybody abused by mask will come up. And like that was a big joke. Yeah. Do you happen to know if she has terminated her practice? Because we've been trying to reach out to her to give her an opportunity to talk if she wants to. And we we'll keep running into dead ends. Her phone's out of service. And I don't know that her office is even open. Do you happen to it, know? It, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. I did mm-hmm. find out that she was married to a police officer at the time of the of the Doe Row case. And uh, I thought that was very telling because I'm telling you, there were a lot of cops that on those runs, mm-hmm. police runs. And mm-hmm. I just think it was a massive cover-up. Yeah. Teresa, do you think that you remember any of their names or have been able to recognize any of from it those was, events? It was such a shock. I just remember it was two young police officers, but young, like in their early 20s, and not much was said. It was just a done deed was the end of it. And what about the people that worked at Richter's office? Has anybody that worked for him come forward? Because I know he was asked by the media when he was living who worked for him, and he said, Oh, there were so many, I can't remember any names. I know he would shoo them out of the office, right? Yes. When I went, it was just, there was a nurse, but she was shooed away. And it was just me, Maskell, and Richter in the office. And Maskell saying, he must really love you to be in here with you. And then they would get me spread on the table. And Maskell said, look at that. You can drive a train up there. It was just one ridicule after another and uh, that was a downtown office but then I remember another place where after the exam I was taken to a nursery and shown babies to calm me down I don't remember much more than that but Mm. there were several places that Richter was practicing for sure. When did the Sharon May documents thing happen when the documents were looked for? That happened in the 90s, probably around 94, because I remember getting flooded with mail saying, we got him now. And the size of the pits and the numbers of documents that were taken out, we really thought we had a shot with our case. Mm -hmm. And of course, we weren't allowed to see anything. I know a lot of it was psychiatric tests, but I do believe with all my heart that there was pictures of us because Maskell had a camera in his desk, and I do believe he took a lot of pictures. So one of you guys can decide on who should answer this question, but can you talk to me about what led to them finding those documents and anything that we know about what may have been found or what happened? What all I know is that somebody, perhaps the man that buried them, there was a tip of some sort. And mm-hmm. that's all I know. And then they were dug up. And who buries stuff like that in the cemetery? Right. Obviously, he wasn't all there. And then what really pissed me off was during the case, I was told, Beverly told me that one box was related entirely to you. 
and I to me and I said what do you mean was my blazer in there I missed my blazer and there's a blouse I lost and she said we're having the in in camera review with the judge and then you should be able to see that box and that never came to be never came to be Shane I might be able to add a little bit to what Teresa said deep throat who was the officer that came to a couple meetings at my home told us that he got a phone call from a man named Mr. Story. That's really the guy's name. And he Uh was the groundskeeper for the cemetery. And he had been the one that had been, I guess, he worked at the cemeteries and he was Maskell's employee. So he was the one that was told to bury this stuff. And it was three truckloads. The hole was the size of a room. Mr. Story told Deep Throat about this, and Deep Throat looked into it, and that's how they knew that it was buried there. What Mr. Story did was, between two of the truck trips, I guess Maskell had somebody driving a truck back and forth from wherever the stuff was to the cemetery, Mr. Story took a couple of, he took a look at what was there and he kept some of it and he blackmailed Maskell. Maskell knew that the guy had taken some stuff. So Maskell got tired of that and decided to fire the guy. The man lived in a really small house. I've been over there. It's tiny with eight kids and they were not well-to-do family, but they all went to Catholic high school. So the money came from someplace. Mr. Story gets fired and the family gets evicted. And then Story tells Deep Throat about the stuff in the cemetery. And Deep Throat tells, they they determine that they're going to dig it up. Mr. Story had been fired and wasn't working there anymore. So when Deep Throat gets there, He knows that they're not finding anything. They're digging holes with a bulldozer and they're not finding anything. He gets in his car and goes to get Mr. Story, who's on another job now, brings him back. He gets on the bulldozer and goes right to the spot. So they obviously were on purpose looking in the wrong place. Story dug it up and... That's what you saw in WMAR with Christian Schaefer. So there's so many twists to this whole thing. It would like just that story is a story. Exactly. So weird that it has to be true. And now Mr. Story was willing to talk to Alan Horn, but he has dementia and Mm -hmm. his daughter was going to be with him. And Alan got delayed in traffic and missed the opportunity to talk to the guy and understandably the stories do not want to be bothered about this. They just want to be left alone and we have to respect that. Yeah. Yeah. And after they found those documents, what did they say was all in them or did they ever release that? What was in there? Yeah. What was in the documents or in the box? All I know is Wallace told me that one box had, a lot of stuff to do with me. That's all I was told. And story, Mr. Story's story is that, I know, is that there were pictures of girls without clothes on, at least the top half, that their breasts were exposed. And we don't know what happened to those 
pictures because yeah. we were concerned during the filming if he gave those to us, it would be considered pornography, and then we would be in possession of pornography, and we would have to figure out legally how to handle that. But we were never able to obtain anything. I do know from an interview Sharon May did with someone else that the evaluation of the young man from the Catholic Community Middle School who reported John Mersbacher and Principal Sister Eileen Weissman having sex in her office, mm. that he was evaluated by Maskell at school and Maskell determined that he needed to be in Shepherd Pratt. So that young man went to Shepherd Pratt from his school, and Sharon May told another reporter that boy's evaluation was in that dig. Now, for her to know that one evaluation was in there, she had to know what else was in there. Absolutely. An evaluation is not going to be, it's not that big. And no. she would have had to go through that. There has to be an inventory somewhere. They it's never the release what was in it? You mean what was in the hole? What was all taken to an evidence room? And then we were told that one of the hurricanes flooded the evidence room and everything got moldy and was thrown out, which I know happens. But I also heard from someone that all of that stuff was moved into shipping containers, which I think are like big truck bodies and stored at Fort Meade. And I ha actually have a volunteer working on that. She has submitted a FOIA request to determine if indeed the stuff from the Holy Cross dig is still existing. Boy, so, that would be question good. mark. Yeah, I know. She's mm. not getting real far, though, although she's on a first-name basis with whoever's in charge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know how that's like. Yep. First-name mm. basis with people. So, Teresa, going, jumping up, of course, from the Joe Rowe case comes the time right before you and I actually started talking for our first podcast episode. What was your thoughts about when you heard that they were going to film for The Keepers? Oh, I, I was delighted. When I first met Jess and Ryan, I met him at Panera Bread because I didn't know who they were and I was <laughs> paranoid. <laughs> when I told them there in a nutshell what had happened, then they asked me if I'd be willing to repeat it on film, I, I said, sure, because I wanted my story out there. I never dreamed that it would get so big and we'd have such outpouring of love and support. And just three weeks ago, I had a lady, young lady here from Mexico in, interviewing me in my living room with her camera. They, the people from all over the world are saying, Thank you. Thank you, all of you, the investigators, Gemma, Abby, the participants, Jean, me, and others. They said that we've given them hope, and that makes me feel really good, really good. It should make you feel good, too, Gemma, because we're giving people all over the world hope. I was going to wait until the end to say this to you, Teresa, but I'm just going to say it here, and it's okay if it's on the air. I just want you to know how much I appreciate that you and I are back on good terms again, because that was 
last summer was hard for everybody. I think we all slid downhill and I value your friendship and your your story. And I have such compassion for what happened to all of you. So I just want to know, want you to know how much I appreciate and love you. Okay. Oh, that means a great deal. I really, really feel the same about you. And I think it's really good that we got along and now we can respect each other. And yeah. I do think the shock of the way it hit, the way the keepers hit, I don't think any of us had an idea of how to react to it. We weren't, yeah, we weren't prepared. Not for something of this magnitude. Yeah. I ran into somebody at a, at a hospital in downtown Baltimore. I went there with a, a friend who, who needs some work. And the nurse came over and gave me a hug. And she yeah. said, I saw the keepers. It's still happening. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, a year later, yeah. it's still happening. Don't Yeah, don't you think it's happening all over again now that the shock's worn off? But with the Attorney General's report in Pennsylvania, I think everything's cooking up again. And I think this is, I think the whole church is going to unravel. And I, absolutely. It's for me. Yep. Absolutely. I think we get I, all the answers. Yeah, I went to Pennsylvania twice back, I believe it was in May before the grand jury report was released. And I talked with Mark Rossi and I told the audience, I want the bishops held accountable, the bishops held accountable. And then the report was released. And just last week, I walked up there on a rally to support our brothers and sisters and survivors and their supporters. And Mm -hmm. because it's a big movement there and they're pivotal, I think, in, in having these states fall one by one with the grand jury. And I talked to an investigator at our attorney general's office and think we're changing the world. We are changing the, ch- the church as we know it. I think we are too. Can you believe this is happening in our lifetime? I could never have thought. I know. Like a year ago, who would have thought? It's surreal. It really is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all of us had a part. It wasn't just one person. It mm-hmm. was you mm-hmm. and Diggin and Abby Diggin and yeah. setting up the group online. And social media helped a lot. But right. everybody's coming with kindness. And then the Me Too movement, everything. So I think we're on a forward motion. I really do. I, I do, too. I really Very do. I'm there. I feel really positive about it. And I do right. think we're going to find out what happened to Kathy. I really do. I think we're very close right now. And I did want to touch a little bit more on the Pennsylvania grand jury. So it was a few months ago where they released a report of about 300 priests that are accused of abusing more than 1,000 victims. Yes. And as you mentioned, it's been going state to state now where more and more people are talking out about it. In fact, of course, I'm from Indiana. Just yesterday, the Archdiocese of Indianapolis released 30 names of priests that have been accused of abusing more than 100 children. Now, in the initial reporting, the Archdiocese of Indianapolis talked about how they were releasing this, this list of priests who had been accused of abuse because they felt that it was their duty to be transparent. But I want to make it clear to people 
but if you're listening, uh, I was looking through all of these reports. And the interesting thing to me is that the Archdiocese of Indianapolis could have the audacity to say they were trying to be transparent when most of the abuse was reported many years ago. So well, I have a quote really quick that I wanted to read to you. There's a man named Robert, I believe his last name's Hodson. He's a former priest, and he's the president of an organization called Road to Recovery, where they help victims of sex abuse. He said, unfortunately, the church only does this kicking and screaming when it's confronted with the possibility of indictments. Isn't that the most truthful thing that I've ever heard? I kind of laughed a little bit when I first saw the Indianapolis Archdiocese talk about how they were trying to be transparent. And then I looked up when the cases were actually reported, and it was a joke. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.